This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Biomega Fish Oil from Biotics Research. For over 40 years, Biotics Research has been providing the highest quality supplements, surpassing industry standards. Biomega Fish Oil contains therapeutic doses of vital omega-3s in the triglyceride form, which is highly bioavailable. Biotics Research ensures maximum purity and freshness by managing their fish oils from catch to capsule, verified by rigorous independent testing. For more information, go to drhoffman.com slash bioticsresearch. That's drhoffman.com slash bioticsresearch for Biomega fish oil. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to discuss a subject that uh, we so seldom touch upon, uh, and that subject is plastic surgery. Uh, plastic surgery is uh, a field uh, that uh, has come along quite a lot in the past few years, and in particular, we're going to focus on hair restoration. Yeah, that is something that also we're seeing all kinds of innovations in that field. And yeah, here's a big deal for both men and women. We're going to talk to board-certified plastic surgeon Gary Linkov. He's one of my good colleagues whose work is featured at Rebalance, which is a, a new center, a multidisciplinary center in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, and uh, Gary uh, is um, an expert uh, not just in plastic surgery, he's trained in plastic surgery. It was a very rigorous process. We're going to talk about the training that goes into that. Uh, but he has uh, a very flourishing subspecialty uh, in the field of hair restoration. So without further ado, welcome, Gary. It's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Hoffman. It's so great to be here with you and with your guests. I'm very happy and, uh, and honored to be here with you today. It's my pleasure. So, well, first of all, uh, you know, before we get into... Uh, some of these breakthrough techniques. Uh, what type of training uh, do board-certified plastic surgeons get? And it, was there additional training uh, for uh, your subspecialty, which is the hair restoration? Because, you know, I got to say that uh, when I was selecting uh, medical specialties uh, mm -hmm. way back when, when I got my medical training, you know, yeah, okay, there was internal medicine, and that was three years, and then there was right. additional uh, training in, in subspecialties, whether you pick endocrinology or cardiology, and that might last you... I don't know, four or five years of uh, training after medical school. But how many years did you go through uh, to get to this uh, stage where you're board certified? Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely elaborate on my training. So um, after high school, going back to that point in my life, I went on to um, Cornell University for my undergrad. I was a psychology major as an undergraduate. So I think actually uh, that does help me now in uh, the line of work that I'm in, understanding uh, human nature and uh, and where people are coming from. So I think mm -hmm. it definitely uh, plays a that, role. That is a big component. because, And we'll talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that because, you know, sometimes uh, we really have to kind of explore the motivations of patients. Right. We don't want patients to undergo uh, multiple, multiple procedures and end up looking like some of these uh, horrendo pictures of c celebrities who've gone under the knife too many times. Exactly right. That's a, that's a very valid point. So, so after, back to your training. Uh, yep. 
Yes, exactly. After undergraduate training, I went on to uh, do my medical degree at Columbia um, in, in Manhattan, and um, I actually spent five years getting my medical degree because I also, uh, during that time, basically in the middle of medical school, did a separate year of uh, head and neck cancer research hmm. and Memorial Sloan Kettering. So I had a growing interest in medical school in not we just... We actually saw a patient yesterday who was precisely treated for head and neck cancer at Memorial Sloan Kettering, a very innovative approach they use because sometimes they don't use surgery. They use radiation and, and chemo in lieu of surgery yeah. when surgery is, is dicey. Yes, absolutely right. So that was um, five years of training in, in medical school with the additional year of uh, research where I did uh, everything from work on mice with different types of cancers uh, to clinical research where we're studying basically different uh, chart reviews and trying to figure out trends in the data. So after those five years, I went on to do head and neck surgery. So at that point, I really became interested in uh, head and neck anatomy. So I was drawn to the sort of tactile feel of, um, of surgery and being able to have like an instant uh, result that can improve someone's life. But I also really just like learning the anatomy of the head and neck. And what's interesting is that in medical school, when you're looking at the textbooks and even in the operating room, since you're always the furthest one from the actual patient, you're not really understanding the anatomy well because it's so three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I wanted to just learn more about it. And going uh, off into uh, training in head and neck surgery really allowed me to, to get super hands-on and to finally understand a lot of uh, the different connections of the nerves and the blood vessels and the different many different structures that exist in the head and neck area. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like the difference, you know, the difference between uh, general anatomy and, and facial and neck anatomy is a little mm -hmm. bit like the difference between, uh, I guess, general architecture, uh, building a house versus uh, manufacturing an exquisitely uh, intricate Swiss watch because, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, I know the basic muscles, I know the biceps, the triceps, you know, the uh, deltoid, right. but when it comes to the facial muscles, there's so many of them. So many yeah. of them are involved. They're tiny. They're, they're innervated by complex nerves and uh, there are many layers in them. And if, if you lose mm -hmm. uh, control over one or another of them, your whole uh, aspect, your facial presentation will be changed. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And, you know, sometimes people will ask me, well, do you do cosmetic surgery or do you do like reconstructive surgery? And I always look at them and say, you know, it's really one and the same. And they look at me confused, like, what do you, what do you mean? It's one or the other. And I think the insurance companies would like us to believe that it's one or the other. But the truth is that it's always interconnected because like you said, I mean, those muscles play different roles. And so sometimes there's a, a cosmetic manifestation of those muscles. Other times there's a functional, you know, um, uh, implication. So you have to keep both in mind whether you're rebuilding someone's face after cancer or you're trying to, you know, uh, turn back the, the clock and make them look younger. I mean, it's always very much uh, interrelated. So so that anatomy and that just um, kind of thirst. Yeah, so we got, we got you through medical school and I'm already, I'm already feeling tired because you're, you're <laughs> you took an extra year. That Boy, you're a nut for punishment. Yes. Yes, I sure am. But, you know, in my med school, about a third of us took uh, time off for research. So it wasn't just to, you know, prove your resume and get in, you know, to the next step, but it was really to, because, you know, we just really enjoyed research uh, for, for what it was worth. So, so that, that was a good year for me. Uh, no, no regrets. Um, and so then I went on to head and neck uh, surgery training uh, in Philadelphia at uh, the Temple Head and Neck um, Institute. And um, 
while there, you know, I was kind of drawn to a lot of the reconstructive procedures. I enjoyed the surgeries where people came in with broken jaws and we had to figure out a way to piece them back together, or they had a cancer removal on the face and there was a big hole and we're trying to think of ways to possibly repair it. And there are always many options. So I like the creative aspect of that. And also just like the suturing and, and sort of the, um, the procedural side of it too. So um, I definitely started to explore more of my interests in plastic surgery uh, at that time during residency and learning you know, what else I had to do in terms of my training to get to the point where I could focus almost exclusively on plastic surgery of the head and neck. And, and dealing with uh, various forms of havoc, like gunshot wounds and burns and so on, because that's yeah. part of medical training, especially if you train in the inner city, that you're going to see a lot of mayhem. Yes, yes. It's, it's amazing how routine uh, those instances become. You know, normally you would never think of walking into a room where someone just got shot in the face. But then when you do it on call, you know, every week to two weeks, it, it almost becomes the routine, which is very odd. So after one of those, a routine rhinoplasty would seem like a walk in the park. <laughs> yes. However, rhinoplasty, believe it or not, I think is one of the most challenging procedures. But to, for uh, for in, our, in the, the lexicon, it, for, it's un, basically a nose job. <laughs> okay. Yes, yes. And, and there are just a lot of nuances uh, that go into uh, nose surgery. And, and also the expectations are, are usually greater than, than that of like a gunshot wound victim. Mm -hmm. So so both can be extremely challenging. Um, but but yeah, I mean, from the standpoint of uh, the, the gruesomeness of it, uh, rhinoplasty is, is really not much, but getting it just right, exactly what the patient kind of intended or, or wanted in, in their mind's eye is, is challenging, especially when you're worrying about the, the functional component, like making sure they still breathe well you know it used to be that people did nose jobs and and they just wanted to make the nose smaller because yeah. that's what the majority of people asked yeah. for nowadays the paradigm has shifted to recreating structure and not making the nose smaller because people used to be basically be made into nose cripples they couldn't breathe yeah. for the rest of their life and and getting that cartilage that was removed back uh, later on is actually uh, very difficult and, and quite challenging um, and morbid if if you need to rebuild the nose. So the key is to actually not remove more than you have to. Um, so that whole part, that's It's harder to, to rebuild than to take away. I mean, yes. To, right. yes. Uh, so the, um, the the actual fellowship that you underwent, I, you know, it's it's an, that was very daunting to me when I, at one point I contemplated a surgical uh, residency. It's it's very tough, and it lasts a long time. You did a you did head and neck surgery for how many years? For five years. Five years. Okay, because medicine yeah. three years. We got that yes. easy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then I did fellowship at um, Washington University in St. Louis, which was a uh, you know is considered one of the top uh, academic programs in the country, and that was specifically in facial plastics and reconstructive surgery. So that was a combination of of the more cosmetic aesthetic types of cases, but also heavy duty reconstructive work uh, as well. So it kind of built on some of my early experiences in residency, and uh, spent the full year only doing uh, facial uh, plastic surgery. So that was it was a wonderful year. I had, to, uh, I had a chance to spend time not just with the academicians at the ho big hospital, but also with uh, some of the private practice folks in, in St. Louis who uh, were at the top of their uh, game and, and doing amazing work. So And, and actually who have trained a lot of the top surgeons in Beverly Hills and New York City. It's, it's 
kind of just happens that way. A lot of them have uh, gone mm-hmm. through St. Louis during their training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, uh, well, it, each step, though, uh, is another application process, another selection process. And, you know, yes. kudos for you for, for making the cut because uh, yes. it's, it's, it's hard to get into a plastics residency. It's, it's popular because, obviously, it's a, it's a lucrative field. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's, it, there are a lot more applicants, uh, than there are places for plastic surgery in this country. Yes. Um, okay, folks, at this point, uh, let's allow one of our sponsors to share this important message with you. This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Propax Gold with NT Factor, a complete vitamin and mineral formula. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to reduce fatigue, whatever the cause, age, illness, or just being run down. NT Factor repairs damaged cells and restores healthy bacteria in your digestive tract. Clinical trials have shown NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half, and it even reverses some symptoms of aging. I've been taking NT Factor for years. With a 45-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To order, call 800-982-9158, 800-982-9158, or go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting our sponsors. They're what make Intelligent Medicine a continuing free resource to you. And now back to our guest, plastic surgeon, Dr. Gary Linkov. So, you know, I have to say, you know, one of the problems that I have with plastic surgery and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I feel I'm a little bit, you know, with a medical background, I'm, I'm kind of an expert in this. Is I can go to a party and pretty quickly I can spot who's had substandard plastic surgery because it's pretty right. obvious they have there's a there's a look you know and that yeah. look uh is is nondescript featureless characterless there's a uniformity mm-hmm. of plastic surgic surgery outcomes so you know having all this uh, technical expertise that that's great but right. where do you derive your aesthetic sense from because it, actually i know of plastic surgeons some of whom are uh, artists and, and sculptors and they yeah. they transfer their aesthetic uh sense uh to the palate because this is a you know this is a palate that's even more complex than clay because it's living mm-hmm. tissue and it has to heal yes and so yeah so so to uh, i'll get it definitely into that i just wanted to point out that there are many plastic surgeons who are excellent surgeons and they actually avoid procedures on the face because to many people, it's, um, you know, it's stress provoking. It, it's difficult and, um, people's expectations are obviously extremely high for their face. So, mm-hmm. so even amongst plastic surgeons, there's, um, you know, I would say a, a big percentage that tries to avoid it because they, they can do many other types of surgeries mm-hmm. that are more stress free. So, uh, coming back to, I guess some of my, um, uh, early inspirations for, I guess, later on leading to this field, uh, were definitely also in the art realm. I uh, took different drawing classes, painting classes since uh, fourth grade. My, my parents enrolled me in different uh, types of courses that I really enjoyed. Um, and then actually between undergrad and med school, I spent six weeks in Florence, Italy, hmm. uh, just taking a sketching class. So every day we'd go to a different museum. There's so many in Florence hmm. and, and some of the neighboring towns, and, and we would just sketch uh, what we were seeing and, and get feedback for it. So um, that was great. And then also in, in college, I took a, a sculpture class, and uh, we had to basically sculpt um, a bust of one of our uh, classmates and sort of had to do it of each other. So it was, uh, it was a very interesting experience. I still remember when our instructor 
came up to my bust like sort of early on in the process and said, you know, something looks off here, the proportions are a little off. And he literally used this uh, one type of uh, sculpture device and, and just shaved off half of the face that I had worked for weeks to build. And uh, that was <laughs> sort of a demoralizing uh, day, but it really sort of helped me um, hone my skills and, and uh, vision of the proportions and I understood later why he had done that and I think the ultimate result was was much better um, so you know I think on the face and, and doing surgery on the face you definitely have to have an artistic eye uh, before we use anything like a knife um, you have to mark out the face and so you're essentially just drawing on the face trying to envision what it will look like um, so definitely those early experiences uh, factor into my uh, sort of everyday life now, absolutely. Do, do you ever use software with your patients to uh, help them envision what the modification might look like? Because, I mean, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, what architects do when they say, well, this is what the room's going to look like. We'll create a simulation. Yeah, that's a great question. So I use it for uh, rhinoplasty simulation. I think it's a really effective tool for that because oftentimes people don't really know what they want their nose to look like. Mm -hmm. They just know that there's something off and they want it different. And it's difficult in a consultation just by showing them to, uh, for the patient to envision, like, what will that look like if I don't have a hump? Um, so I think it's really effective to use software. I, I specifically use Photoshop because a lot of the programs out there uh, that are sold by different companies are just an offshoot of Photoshop. So I'm comfortable mm -hmm. in Photoshop, so I use that. And I'm able to use You're a photographer YouTube. as well. So presumably you play around with that software. Right. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So so that's what I use. And I show people what they might look like. But the danger of, of overusing that type of software, especially for other types of or all types of uh, you know, face plastics uh, procedures, is that you can definitely give people a false uh, sort of false advertising and make them mm -hmm. believe, hey, they're going to look like this. And then when they don't, mm -hmm. they'll be fairly upset at you. So mm -hmm. I, I think there's a kind of a, a, a good kind of healthy place where, you know, you can fit the software utilization in, but sort of not underdo it and not overdo it, just like most other things. If you're doing it on everyone, you're showing them how all their aging face uh, results will be, you'll have many, I think, dissatisfied patients because some, some results are more challenging to predict. But I think for rhinoplasty, um, in, in, in good hands, you, you really can uh, estimate what they'll look like. And I think most patients uh, appreciate that. You know, when people go for plastic surgery, they have options. You know, if they want to do the bags under their eyes, they can actually see an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor, or sometimes dermatologists do procedures, uh, or sometimes um, ENTs, ear, nose, and throat doctors, will do nose jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. So, is there an advantage to seeing a board certified plastic surgeon? Yeah, I think there definitely is. These days, the the training for plastic surgery is definitely becoming more and more subspecialized. So, my training was in head and neck surgery, and with additional training in facial plastics, and then I did hair restoration um, surgery training after that. But for uh, there are other paths, so you can do sort of general. Um, kind of full body plastic surgery training. The problem there is that most of the times those residents are not being taught 
um, facial plastic surgery because that has already sort of been um, pushed off into into a different subspecialty. Because there's the tummy tucks and there's uh, there's uh, liposuction and there's exactly. uh, breast uh, augmentation or reduction procedures and all that stuff. Right, and butt lifts that, that yeah. people are doing, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't do any of those procedures, uh, partly because I have no interest and partly because that wasn't my core training. Mm -hmm. So so I think it's important to go to someone who has solid core training in, in a type of uh, plastic surgery that they're doing. So mm -hmm. for example, if there is a complicated eye procedure, so some uh, eye plastics procedures are extremely involved and they start to involve like the, the inner workings of the eye. So for, for a case like that, I would also refer somebody to someone who is ocular plastics trained, mm -hmm. meaning that they went through ophthalmology and then they did usually two years of um, eye plastics. Okay. So. So yeah, so I think it's it's difficult for people sometimes to capture what type of training the person had uh, because there's also another route. There's oral surgeons. So mm -hmm. basically someone who became a dentist then decided to go back and do oral surgery. And then they have a few fellowships out there in, in the country for cosmetic surgery. Mm -hmm. So they are actually dentists who have been trained to also do breast augmentation and all mm -hmm. types of other things. Wow. A, a so dentist who does breast augmentation? Well, after some additional training, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. so I think, you know, and, and many times on people's websites, there it, it, it's difficult to exactly understand what type of training mm -hmm. they did. So, yep. so I definitely appreciate when I go to people's websites when they're honest about where they came from. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can better understand where their expertise lies. So that, I think, is very important. So, you know, plastic surgery is now basically somewhat fragmented. And there are those who do solely sort of very basic cosmetic procedures like liposuction. Mm -hmm. Then there are those who do very complicated reconstructive like free flap surgeries to rebuild, you know, mm -hmm. large portions of the body. Yes, yeah, so if someone's had a devastating uh, accident or their face has gone through, uh, you know, a, a windshield or something and, you know, they have all kinds of right. gruesome injuries. Um, exactly. There's even facial transplants these days. I mean, really going yeah. into some very high-tech procedures. That's right. That's right. So, so I think some people are, are cross-trained fairly well into some areas that maybe aren't their core training or aren't, aren't a part of their core training. But finding out what their background exactly is and what they do a lot of in their current practice, I think is super important for any patient looking to, you know, have any sort of uh, plastic surgery done for, for any reason, really, uh, whether it's cosmetic or not. So those are all important questions to ask. What, what about managing uh, expectations? You say you have a psychology background. What sort of psychological issues come up in uh, when patients consult you, you know, the, the realistic mm -hmm. uh uh, expectations, uh, the uh, sometimes um, uh, quirky demands of patients. Uh, how do you cope with that? Well, so the, the, that's a whole big discussion. So there, there are many different aspects. There are basically certain red flags that I think uh, many plastic surgeons look for. And if they don't look for them, they probably should. So one is a patient who's had, you know, say, 20, 30 different types of plastic surgeries before, and they're still coming back unhappy. So I always ask, even if someone has had just one plastic surgery in the past, I always ask them, like, are you happy with the results? And it doesn't mean that if they say that they're unhappy that 
that's a huge red flag. But if they're unhappy, I really sort of want to know why. Is it because there was a complication and the surgeon failed to, you know, kind of hold their hand through the process or didn't want to revise their work? Or do they just think it doesn't look good? So anytime someone's had any prior work done, I'm always sort of probing and, um, and looking for certain types of answers to help gauge like how will they respond to my surgery potentially because if they were so unhappy with 20 prior plastic surgeries from say five different plastic surgeons the odds of of me making them happy with my procedure are probably almost zero do do the initials bdd uh, resonate for you Yes, body dysmorphic disorder. Okay, right. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and some people actually offer screening uh, tests for for their patients. They they have them fill out certain um, uh, questionnaires that help uh, get. I, I honestly prefer not to, and um, I don't think that the answers on those questionnaires are uh, foolproof. So I basically do my own assessment. But absolutely, BDD is a huge issue in plastic surgery. Just people who are never pre- satisfied with their body image. They have a relentless uh, pursuit of some ideal that's uh, you know, an ever-receding mirage. Correct. Yes. So one other uh, factor that I look for is, are they unhappy with one basic trait that I see to be an issue myself? Mm-hmm. Or are there many, many different traits that they're complaining mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. some of which I don't even see what they're referring to you know if they they look point to their nose and say my nose is too wide and my aesthetic eye and based on certain aesthetic principles does not the nose does not look wide i mean i basically will will confront them and and tell them that and if they insist on it then i'm clearly not the right person for them Mm -hmm. so i think honesty in the whole process i think really trying to understand people's Mm -hmm. motivations one other issue is sometimes the 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 motto the customer is always right is not necessarily applicable to plastic surgery you're not just a mercenary a hired gun is going to do whatever your uh, client desires correct Yeah, you have to choose wisely for, I think, the patient's sake and for your own sake and the practice's sake because, you know, one patient can really these days do a lot of harm to someone's reputation with uh, the way the Internet works and and that sort of thing. So, so absolutely, I I think it's a a two-way street. So, you know, I'll rarely tell patients this, but the truth is when you walk into the plastic surgeon's office, as much as you're sort of sizing them up and evaluating them, they're doing the same to you. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it really is a, a big decision to enter into sort of that contract with someone to say that I'm going to make changes to your face that we've agreed on. And, you know, that that's a it's a big deal. So, so I, I treat it with, you know, with a lot of uh, humility. Gary, this is a good point in which to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. I want to reserve some time in part two to talk okay. about uh, specific treatments for uh, hair restoration, which is one of your subspecialties. Also talk a little bit more about uh, plastic surgery. So we'll pause for just a moment. We That's invite good. our listeners to uh, check back in with us for part two of our discussion with Gary Linkoff. He is a board-certified plastic surgeon, uh, currently works at uh, Rebalance, uh, a new center in Midtown Manhattan. This is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast, and I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman.